Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 114, The Recycled Creed, 342-359. to In the last episode, we heard the famous Dedication Creed, which was the second creed from the Council at Antioch in the year 341. And this was one of several attempts to replace the Nicene Creed of 325 that were formulated in the middle decades of the 4th century. Later in this episode, we'll hear from another creed that may be from that same council. But before we get to that, a little bit more about these so-called Eusebians. If you remember from last time, this is one of the strains or parties within Catholic theology in this period, as discussed by the theologian Louis Ayers. And it may have been the biggest party. It was at least a substantial minority People with a very partisan outlook, with a very superficial grasp of what went on in these years, sometimes will refer to these as Arians or the Arian party. They weren't Arians at all. Basically, they were against the same things that the Creed of Nicaea was against. They were against Arius' claim that there was a time when the sun didn't exist and that the sun was a creature created from nothing. And they were also against Sibelianism, whatever that is. But these Eusebians were not for what Nicaea was for. The very language that made the Creed of Nicaea distinctive, its talk of the Son being generated eternally from the Usia of the Father, and its claim that the Father and Son are the same Usia, whatever those mean, well, they weren't in favor of that. It kind of sounded as if a material substance was being attributed to the Father and the Son, which they thought was not right. Or maybe that it's collapsing the Father and Son into the same being, which they thought that wasn't right either. Isn't that Sibelianism, just to say that they're the same individual? As I understand them, these theologians, these bishops, were basically what you could call originists, taking their inspiration from the famous origin of Alexandria. On this view, roughly, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three beings— They're all divine, however, the one true God, the one God of monotheism, is just the Father himself. The Son and the Holy Spirit eternally depend on the Father, and they derive their lesser sorts of deity from the Father. So it's a monotheistic view. It's also a Unitarian view, because it identifies the one true God with the Father alone. However, it does posit the divinity of the Son and the Holy Spirit. But it doesn't suppose that that makes them one God. It doesn't suppose that the Son and Spirit are the same God as the Father. And Origen was very explicit about their having a lesser kind of divinity, and each of them being called God in a different sense than the one true God is called God. Origen says that the Father is Hotheos, the God, God with a capital G in English. But these others are Theos, that is, God, or translatable as a God, or just God with a lowercase g. So who were these two Eusebiuses for whom this Eusebian party is named? The older one was the famous Eusebius of Caesarea. And this is the famous church historian whose ecclesiastical history is an invaluable source, although it does have its gaps and its mistakes. 
This is the book that everybody who's interested in church history has on their shelf. He may have been born around 260. He died in the year 340, so just right before the creed that we heard last time. And as a young man, he'd been a disciple of a guy named Pamphilus, who was a devoted originist and in fact headed the Christian school at Caesarea. This is the school that Origen founded after his dispute with the Bishop of Alexandria, where he was from. So this Eusebius is born just a few years after Origen's death, and he's taught by one of Origen's successors. So this Eusebius of Caesarea becomes bishop at Caesarea in the year 315, and he's actually trying to enlarge the library there, which was begun by Origen. When the Arian controversy broke out, he defended Arius. It sounded to him like Arius's views better fit his, although as an originist they can't have been exactly the same. And he was condemned at a council at Antioch in the year 324. But in 325, at the Council of Nicaea, he somehow persuaded them to affirm his orthodoxy, and he was reestablished by the Emperor Constantine. One last thing that should be noted about this guy, Eusebius of Caesarea, is that, to be blunt, he was a blatant propagandist for the Emperor Constantine. This propaganda is found in his book called The Life of Constantine, and also in some orations that he gave on the 30th anniversary of Constantine's accession to emperor. The other Eusebius is Eusebius of Nicomedia. He died in the year 342. He was not only related to the imperial family, but he was a good friend of Constantine's sister named Constantia. And this Eusebius, Eusebius of Nicomedia, was the bishop who performed the baptism of the dying Constantine. Constantine, you may have heard, put off his baptism till he was on his deathbed. And as I understand it, the basic reason for that is that he thought that as an emperor, you're going to have to bust some heads. You're going to have to kill some people. You're going to have to commit some sins. And many mainstream Christians in this time held that baptism washed away your pre-baptism sins. But then if you sin seriously after that, well, then there's nothing that can wash that away. So, as a, quote, Christian emperor, Constantine figured that he still had plenty of sinning to do, unfortunately. It's just in the job description. And so he put off his baptism until the bitter end. Sometimes partisans of Nicaea will brush over or ignore the fact that he was baptized by an anti-Nicene bishop, a, quote, Arian. Eusebius had been kind of a royal court theologian, directly advising the emperor. And when Constantine built a new imperial city in his own honor, named after himself, Constantinople, this Eusebius was appointed its bishop. But this was in the year 339, so it was right at the very tail end of his life. Going back in time, how did he get mixed up in the Nicene controversy? There's a good summary of this in a book called The SCM Press A to Z of Patristic Theology. This says, quote, Early in his dispute with Bishop Alexander, Arius had appealed to Eusebius's protection. They had been fellow students of Lucian of Antioch and had received assurances of support. At the Council of Nicaea I, in the year 325, Eusebius accepted the Homoousian Creed but refused to subscribe to the condemnation of Arius himself, for which cause Constantine deposed and banished him. He was recalled within two years, however, and became the emperor's close confidant. End quote. 
And it was this Eusebius who had Athanasius deposed from his position as bishop at the Synod at Tyre in 335. And it was this Eusebius who presided over the dedication council in 341 at Antioch. So he was then and now considered kind of a leader of that party, the party that agreed to be against what Nicaea in 325 was against, but which also disapproved of Nicaea's innovations in language. They thought those innovations would surely do more harm than good. When we come back, why was there all this urgent creed-making anyway, and why were the Roman emperors involved? So what explains this flurry of creeds, and why do the emperors insist on sticking their bloody hands into these matters? Why should an emperor of the Roman Empire be involved in official formulations of Christian theology? Well, when Constantine converted, or converted, using scare quotes, he thought, as was a natural thought to many people through history, that it best served the interest of the state to have a single religion. Now that wasn't really possible in his day, Mainstream, small-c Catholic Christianity was a growing and thriving movement and was reasonably unified, but of course that wasn't the traditional religion of the Roman Empire. The traditional religion was still going strong, worshipping the various deities of the traditional Roman pantheon. Sometimes it's said that Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That's not true. That happened basically right after 381 at the hands of another emperor. What Constantine did was he gave a privileged position to Christianity. He gave them the favored position with the government that heretofore only the traditional religions had enjoyed. So in a law decreed in 326, Constantine said this, Benefits that have been granted in consideration of religion must benefit only the adherents of the Catholic faith. It is our will, moreover, that heretics and schismatics shall not only be alien to those privileges, but shall be bound and subjected to various compulsory public services. Historian Charles Freeman comments as follows, quote, The definition of Catholicism and heresy took on a new urgency for the state. This explains why the emperors came to play such a large part in the determining of doctrine, although their roles varied. Some had personal convictions to impose, others were more concerned to find formulations of doctrine around which consensus could be built. By the end of the century, emperors were imposing doctrinal solutions that were backed by imperial edicts. The issue was a live one because Nicaea had solved nothing. End quote. That's right, it hadn't solved anything. In fact, it had created new problems with its new language that we already mentioned. Last week we heard the longish second creed from this council in 341, known to history as the Dedication Creed, which was meant to replace the language used at Nicaea, all the while opposing the so-called Sabellian and Arian views. So to this extent they agreed with the Creed of Nicaea, but really they were just expressing a popular mainstream view in Catholic thinking. 
They had no clue at this point that the Catholic movement would, later on, fixate on the language of this council in 325 as the all-important difference between Orthodox and heretical Christianity. What they did know was that this language was new. What they did know was this language was divisive and that people interpreted it in different ways. Thus, the attempt to replace it. When we come back, the so-called Fourth Creed from the Council of Antioch. just a minute, we'll hear the entirety of what historians call the Fourth Creed from the Council of Antioch, although it's not clear that this name befits it. And remember, from the end of the last episode, the so-called Third Creed was really just a statement by a single bishop who'd been suspected of heresy. So we're passing that one by. So is what we're about to hear indeed a statement from the Council of Bishops at Antioch in the year 341? It's not terribly clear. In his book De Synodis, that is, on synods, written about a decade after the council, Athanasius says this, Ninety bishops met at the dedication, Constantius the most irreligious being present, having thus conducted matters at Antioch at the dedication, thinking that their composition was deficient still, and fluctuating moreover in their own opinions, again they draw up afresh another formulary, after a few months, professedly concerning the faith, and dispatch Narcissus, Maris, Theodorus, and Mark into Gaul. And they, as being sent from the council, deliver the following document to Constans Augustus of blessed memory, and to all who were there. So Athanasius represents the creed as coming from the council in Antioch, but some months later, he characterizes it as fluctuating, and as yet another formulation. This is part of his rhetorical strategy right? When you take time to make up your mind and go through many drafts, you're being thoughtful and thorough. But when heretics do it, they're pathetically unstable, foolish, and totally unable to get it right. So in this book, he doesn't go through all of the attempts to replace the creed from Nicaea in 325, but he goes through a whole bunch of them and quotes from a whole bunch of them. And it's part of his strategy to mock them as different and, uh, you know, as if his opponents are just floundering around and kind of running into each other and bonking heads against each other like a bunch of idiots and uh, unreasoning animals like they are. So he's contrasting this shining example of the Creed of Nicaea at 325 against this ungodly herd of different creeds that are idiotically offered to replace it. Historians generally interpret Athanasius' statement about the origin of this creed to mean that it was not drawn up at the council that produced the dedication creed we heard last time, but rather by some unknown meeting of bishops a few months later, either late in 341 or sometime in 342. Catholic historian Leo Donald Davis says this about the historical context of this so-called fourth creed. So he's talking about the period after the dedication creed. He says, quote, at this point, Constans, ruler of the West, asked his eastern brother, Constantius II, for information about the teaching of the East. 
This request resulted in a deputation of eastern bishops to Trier, where Constans was in residence. To Constans, they presented what is called the Fourth Creed of Antioch. Quote. Let's hear the entirety of this report, then, the so-called Fourth Creed of Antioch, as reported by Athanasius. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator and maker of all things, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and on earth is named, and in his only begotten Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who before all ages was begotten from the Father, God from God, light from light, by whom all things were made in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, being word and wisdom and power and life and true light who in the last days was made man for us and was born of the Holy Virgin, who was crucified and dead and buried and rose again from the dead the third day and was taken up into heaven and sat down on the right hand of the Father and is coming at the consummation of the age to judge quick and dead and to render to everyone according to his works, whose kingdom endures indissolubly into the infinite ages. For he shall be seated on the right hand of the Father, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. And in the Holy Ghost, that is, the Paraclete, which having promised to the apostles, he sent forth after his ascension into heaven, to teach them and to remind of all things, through whom also shall be sanctified the souls of those who sincerely believe in him. But those who say that the Son was from nothing, or from other subsistence, and not from God, and there was time when he was not, the Catholic Church regards as aliens. What, theologically, should we make of this creed? R.P.C. Hansen comments that, quote, This creed was intended to function as a reconciling formula, obnoxious to nobody and capable of being accepted by all, end quote. So the Son is eternally begotten, he's described as God from God and light from light, and unlike the previous creed, it has a clause designed to exclude the theology of Marcellus that we mentioned last time. This is the phrase that Christ's kingdom is unending. And the anathema at the end of it is similar to Nicaea, but not exactly the same as it. Again, Hansen says, quote, The omissions of this creed are more significant than its positive statements. It leaves out the word usia and its compounds altogether. It makes no attempt to establish the distinctness of the persons in an anti-Sibelian manner. It does not rule out the possibility that there was an occasion or point of time, a kairos, when the sun did not exist, as the dedication creed does. It leaves it open to anyone to believe that the sun is a creature, so long as it is acknowledged that he is begotten. End quote. He also remarks that it leaves out the explicit statement of the dedication creed that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three hypostases, which at this time meant beings. Hansen wonders if the composers of this creed were a little bit, quote, to the left of the people that had written the dedication creed. It's certainly not obvious that they were produced by the same group of people. What's obvious is that this creed is trying to roll back some of the specific demands that some of the partisans of Nicaea wanted to just delete the controversial innovations. Jesus isn't called true God. He's not strictly said to be co-eternal with the Father. You can't say there was a time when he was not, but that might leave open that he came into existence at the same moment as the first moment of time. 
Jesus's reign will last forever? Well, despite the statement of Paul that we heard last time, that's not really a controversial statement. The Holy Spirit is mentioned, just like the creed at Nicaea, but it's perfectly ambiguous here whether the Spirit is just God's power or a manifestation of God's power, or whether the Spirit is a divine person, a divine self. They're probably assuming that the Spirit is a divine self because they're probably originists, but they're probably also aware that not all mainstream Christians think this about the Holy Spirit. And like the creed we saw last time, no mention of a tripersonal God, no insistence on absolute equality in the strongest sense between Father and Son, in the sense that they're both equally divine, have all the same divine attributes, and also no insistence that they are the same God. To the contrary, they are God from God, two beings, both called God, but one from the other. Okay, but which one's the real God? Or God in the most fundamental sense, it's the Father. The creed starts off like many previous creeds by saying, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, creator and maker of all things. So Hansen's right, it is a bland creed, if you want to put it that way, or maybe a circumspect and big tent type of creed a creed that tries not to insist on controversial points, but tries to express what was a mainstream view at that time about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, making allowance for speculations in various directions. When we come back, how was this Big Tent Overture received by the Westerners? This so-called Fourth Creed from the Council of Antioch was sent by Eastern bishops to the West as a sort of olive branch. Hey, can't we agree on this? Here's what RPC Hansen says about its reception. Quote, As a gesture of reconciliation, this embassy was fruitless, because nobody in the West took any notice of the creed, and because the Eastern bishops were concerned with theological agreement and the Western authorities with reversing the formal deposition of several leading bishops of the Eastern Church. End quote. So the Easterners wanted to talk theology, and the Westerners wanted to talk procedure. Hansen also says, quote, It is hard to see how it could have been regarded as likely to conciliate opinion in the West, but the fact remains that it was destined to be used for nearly 15 years as the basis for all other creeds which were designed to be ecumenical, end quote. So instead of making a big splash, it just kind of landed with a thud initially. However, interestingly, these formulations got recycled again and again. Davis says, quote, It will be presented to the East at Sardica, 343, as the basis of the long-lined creed, 345, as the first creed of Sirmium, 351, in the dated creed, 359, and at the Council of Seleucia in 359, end quote. 
You might call this the compromise creed. It tries to say, hey, can't we be against the most extreme kind of Arianism at least and against Sabellianism and can't we lay aside this talk of one Usia and the son as being from the Usia of the father? Can't we all just get along? On the next Trinity's podcast, not one, but two Roman emperors call for a new and truly ecumenical council to sort all of this out. This week's thinking music has been Always the Tease Made, Never the Tease by Dr. Turtle. You can hear this whole track or download it at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. This month, we got a new five-star rating with a very kind review in the iTunes store in Portugal. The user named Max Mello says, quote, I've been voraciously catching up on the earlier Trinity's episodes since coming across this gem a few months back. It consistently features interesting guests that espouse incredibly varied views on the nature of God, from the more mainstream to the, some I'm sure would say, downright heretical. On the hands of a less capable host, these charged matters could devolve into maelstrom, but Dale always manages to help his guests put forward their viewpoints in the strongest, most cohesive way, all in the interest of expanding the listener's religious and philosophical lexicon. Unmissable. End quote. Max Mello, thanks so much. Really appreciate the kind review. If you'd like to leave us a review in the iTunes store in your country, I have instructions that can help you do it at trinities.org slash blog slash review. Thanks for your support, and don't forget to share any episode that you've enjoyed on social media. for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.